I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you'll go to chapter 11, that's where we're going to spend most of our time together this morning. And let me take this opportunity to, um, on behalf of my wife, Carrie Ann, and my daughter, Whitney, just say thank you to you, our church family at Golf Course Road. Uh, I could stand up here for four hours with a dictionary and a thesaurus and still not be able to adequately express how truly grateful we are to you. We're thankful for our God for bringing us to Midland and to work and to worship and serve with you here. But we are so thankful for you. You have just so um, surprisingly, I guess, unexpectedly, not surprisingly, but it's just unexpected in the ways that your generosity to our family has just overwhelmed powered us, overwhelmed us actually, um, and just the way that you've taken care of us and uh, helped us, um, telling us who to call, who's a good plumber, who's a good electrician, and getting us into our house, and just everything that you've done for us. Um, just, I, I don't know what to say except thank you, and it just, it moves us to our souls. We're very grateful to you for that. Um, at the end of Matthew 11, there's a short little prayer of praise and thanksgiving from Jesus. Matthew 11 verses 25 and 26. It's a super short prayer. It's just two little sentences, two little thoughts here. And the prayer seems unprovoked. It seems spontaneous. It almost seems like this prayer just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's almost buried in a full page of red letters. And so it's easy to miss. In fact, if, if you'll do a, a study on the prayers of Jesus or if somebody's preaching through a series or teaching a series on the prayers of Jesus, this one never gets brought up. And the thing I like most about this prayer is that if you really look at it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. This is a specific setting here. This is a very particular time and place. There is a reason this prayer is right here. And this prayer can teach us right here. If you look at the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist is locked up in a high security prison for publicly calling King Herod out for his adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. It's okay to go Ugh, right there, okay? Ugh. But John's powerful prophetic voice is being silenced here. Very soon it will be silenced forever at a gruesome birthday party where instead of a birthday cake and candles, John's head is served on a silver platter. So John knows here at this point that his work is done. He knew his job was to prepare the way for the Lord. In fact, if you'll keep your finger there and you want to, you can turn over to John chapter 3. It's very obvious that John knew exactly what his role was. The Bible says in John 3, there's an argument. That's the word it uses. There's an argument between John's followers and some of the Jews. The Jews are pointing out that, hey, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are now, John. And by the way, John's disciples, people are leaving y'all to go follow Jesus. And John says, no, 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 that's the way it's supposed to be. I have great joy now, John says, verse 29. Everything's complete now. Verse 30, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. Now think about, think about that sentence for a second. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. What would that do for your life? 
if you thought that way? How would that attitude change our church? That's a different sermon, okay? So don't dwell on that just, just now. But let's look at John. Jesus is taking center stage, and John is now being moved to the sidelines. In fact, he's being thrown in prison now for preaching the truth. And if you go back to Matthew 11, where we started, John says, through his followers, John says this uh, through his disciples. He says, hey, Jesus, are you the guy or not? Verse 3, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? John is feeling like so many people feel today. Like maybe the Messiah isn't messianic enough. Maybe this new king isn't kingly enough. The promised Messiah, he says, has arrived. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God is here. So why is it taking so long? Nothing's changed. In fact, John is probably thinking, things have gotten a lot worse since you arrived. I'm in prison, and Herod's got more control, and he's got more power than ever before. You're not really getting the job done here, Jesus. I'm suffering, and the political powers are getting away with murder. Do you really have the answers, Jesus, or should we look somewhere else? Do you have the power, Jesus, or should we look to someone else? Are you the guy we've been waiting for or not? Now, there were some real big differences between John and Jesus. John always preached with fire and thunder in front of these massive crowds. Jesus mostly shared stories around shared meals. John was a very public figure, shouting down the sins of the political leaders in the town square. Jesus, he did most of his teaching under the radar in the small fishing villages around Galilee. John was very strict in his spiritual disciplines. He paid very close attention to the clothes he wore, he wore and the food he ate. Jesus occasionally enjoyed a glass of wine in the company of prostitutes and tax collectors. And so John's wondering... What's going on? When are things going to change for us and for me? Where are the swelling crowds? Where's the revolution? Where's the dramatic overthrow of the political powers? When do we finally get to be in charge? When will our church start growing? Shouldn't we be bigger? Where did everybody go? Shouldn't they be coming back? Shouldn't more of the powerful people and the popular people be at our church? Shouldn't we be having more baptisms? Shouldn't we have more influence? Nothing's changing. Is Jesus really the one or not? So you've got John the Baptist and his misunderstanding. And then you've got the villagers and their indifference. If John's confusion and misunderstanding was a problem for Jesus, then the indifference of his people was probably more like a slap in the face. I mean, you can hear how upset this makes Jesus. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. 
The text tells us that most of Jesus' miracles had been performed in these three towns. Most of Jesus' 12 apostles were born and raised in these three towns. Jesus had made Capernaum his home. The synagogue in Capernaum was Jesus' home church. And these are little towns. These are tiny little villages where everybody knows everybody. You ever lived in a small town before? I've lived in a small town. We lived in Marble Falls for, for nine years uh, during two different stints. And let me tell you, everybody knows everybody and everybody's business. I mean, I couldn't get used to it. You know, we'd go to church on Wednesday night and inevitably somebody would come, and, come up and say to me, um, you know, how was lunch today? I saw your truck at Whataburger, you know. Um, drove by your house late last night. Looks like you were watching Quantum Leap before the news. I'm like, that's so weird. But that's the way it is in a small town, right? Everybody knows everybody's business. And everybody in these little towns, they knew Jesus. They were not ignorant. They had heard about Jesus' miracles. They had heard at least several times Jesus' teachings. If you brought up Jesus' name at the coffee shop, everybody knew who you were talking about. Oh, yeah, that's Mary's son. He, he was in our youth group, you know. Now, now he's hanging out with these fishermen. And, and, yeah, I heard he was in Bethsaida last weekend. And somebody told me he healed a blind guy there. Well, where's he going to be this Saturday? I think he's going to be at Chorazine. That's what I heard. Are you going to go? No, I, I've already heard Jesus. I'm not going. They were ignoring Jesus in his own hometown. They were ignoring Jesus. He was irrelevant to their lives. And so Jesus compares these three tiny villages to three famously huge evil cities of the past. Woe to you, Chorazin, he says. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you're not going to get off easy either just because I happen to live here. You will go down to the depths. Are you going to be lifted up to the skies just because this is my home church? No, no. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I'm telling you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So the man who knows the very most about Jesus has some serious misunderstandings. John doesn't see the dramatic change. He doesn't experience everything he was told that Jesus would do for him. And the people who knew Jesus the best, the people he grew up with and lived with, they didn't accept him either. They ignored him. Jesus didn't matter. And this is what Jesus is dealing with. This is exactly what Jesus is going through when he breaks out into this passionate prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 25. At that time, in the middle of this, while Jesus was dealing with this, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. I love this prayer of Jesus. 
because there's nothing going on in his life right now to account for it. What's going on in his kingdom life? What's happening with his ministry and his calling from God? Everything Jesus stood for and was working toward, none of it was going very well. In fact, it's depressing just how poorly things are going for Jesus. See, if I'm Jesus, I'm, I'm probably looking at John and I'm probably looking at the villagers around me and my neighbors and, and maybe I'm starting to question the whole thing, you know? Am I the guy? Have I maybe misunderstood something here? Maybe I need to change the way I'm doing things. Maybe they're right. The crowds aren't that big and, and we don't seem to have much power or control. Maybe I need to be bigger and louder and flashier. Maybe we need bigger screens and more video and a louder band. Maybe we need to update the logo. Maybe I should lose the tie and start telling jokes. Maybe I should be funnier. Maybe I should stop using words in my sermons like sin and blood. If I were Jesus, you know, I, I might be tempted to look at the misunderstandings and look at the indifference of the community and say, why isn't God doing anything here? I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm working as hard as I can. Why aren't things getting better? Does that feel familiar? Have you ever been there? At that time, Jesus prayed thanksgiving to God. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Father, this is how you work. Jesus says the wise and the learned don't get it. He's using irony here. I praise you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the smarty pants and the know-it-alls. What Jesus is doing, what God is doing through Jesus has nothing at all to do with worldly wisdom or worldly values or worldly knowledge. It's all from above. So those who are entrenched in the pursuits and goals of the world, those who identify with the ways and the means of the world, they miss it. And Jesus knows this, so it doesn't throw him off. The man who knows the most about the coming Messiah, John the Baptist. The man ordained by God to prepare the way. The fact that he mis misunderstands what's happening does not derail Jesus at all. It doesn't cause Jesus to slam on the brakes when the villagers don't comprehend that God himself is in the flesh. And he is right there doing his eternal kingdom work right in front of them. None of this slows Jesus down. Jesus knows that misunderstandings and indifference are never reliable indicators of the presence of the kingdom of God. Amen? And we can get caught up in that. I know I can. Listen to me. Whole churches can get caught up in this. So many things right now in our society are causing Christians to wring their hands in worry and clench their fists in fear. Oh no, the church is in trouble. Oh no, nobody's going to church anymore. 
Oh no, nobody's taking the Bible seriously anymore. Oh no, nobody believes in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh no. And so we forward the emails and we repost the tweets and we fly the flags for better politicians and tougher laws and we complain about the church and we rail against the systems and we get so worked up because God is not working. But this prayer from Jesus gives us the proper perspective. This prayer of thanksgiving in Matthew 11, I think, brings us back. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Yes, Father, I know this is how you do things. There's our perspective. Hebrews 12 also gives us a good perspective. Hebrews 12 addresses the fact that what God is doing is not always seen. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it ain't happening. Listen to Hebrews 12 as the preacher tries to paint a picture of the Christian's life. Regardless of what's happening, you need to realize you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. We look around in this assembly, it's hard to imagine we're surrounded by joyful angels sometimes. Amen? Those of you who aren't smiling, you're supposed to smile at that. Okay? This is the reality. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all people, and to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken, let us be thankful. The powerful and unstoppable energies of the kingdom of God, church, are always moving, always growing always surging just beneath the surface. All around us, there are huge rivers of prayer and faith and hope and praise and forgiveness and salvation and holiness, and they flow right by us every day in every single nook and cranny, hidden in the shadows, overlooked in the crowds, drowned out by the noise maybe, but it's always there. We just don't always see it. We don't always experience it. Now, the conditions here are real. Jesus does not minimize the awful conditions. He takes the misunderstandings and the indifference very seriously. He confronts and rebukes. He exposes arrogance and pretension. And yes, he weeps over hardened hearts. But he doesn't despair. Our Lord Jesus never Second guesses, God. And he never compromises his holiness by watering it down with something less than holy. Because he knows his Father, the gracious Lord of heaven and earth. Romans 4 says, Our God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Don't you love that? Our God, he's our father, 
gives life to what looks like is dead and calls things that are not, things we can't see, as if they were. You don't always see it, but our God does. You can't always make it happen, but our God is. So when Lazarus is in the tomb, when Paul is on a sinking ship, when Peter is confronted by the enemy's fire, when the Samaritan woman is all by herself at the well, when that broken man is living in the cemetery away from his community, when nobody will help the crippled man get into the waters that heal, when Silas is arrested, when the Apostle John is sent away to exile on a prison island, when the crowds are shouting, crucify him, when our Lord Jesus is hanging on a government cross, our God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. So when the doctor gives his diagnosis, when the marriage counselor says, I've done all I know how to do. When the pink slip shows up in your box. When your kids have totally gone off the rails. When your very best friends leave your church. When you are horribly misunderstood. When you are hurt again by the same person. You can wring your hands in worry. You can clench your fists with fear. Or you can raise your hands in praise and thanksgiving to God. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. That's thanksgiving. And it is good to give God thanks. It's good to thank God for the day and for the weather and for the beauty of nature. It is good to thank God for family and friends and turkey and dressing and jalapeno corn and pumpkin pie. That's good. It's good to thank God for health and wealth. It is good to thank God for protection and provision. It is good to say thanks to our God for the good things and good circumstances because we know every good and perfect gift comes from His gracious hand. Amen? But like our Lord Jesus, it is good to thank God when the situation is not ideal. How about thanking the Father when things aren't going so well? How about a genuine and continual expression of praise to God in full faith and trust that He is always alive and active and He is always working in powerful ways that we don't always see? Amen? Amen. May it be so. The Greek word for thanksgiving is Eucharist. The church's Lord's Supper is a thanksgiving meal. We call it communion. The Greek word for communion is koinonia. That word means sharing 
together. It's a communal word that describes a communal event. Koinonia, communion, means fellowship. It means sharing together. It means community. And the meal that the church shares together every week is how we express and how we experience the kingdom of God. We share our food and drink with each other. And we serve one another. And we participate in relationship during the meal. We lost that aspect of the Lord's Supper during the COVID emergency. And we're not willing to give it up. This idea of serving one another and making eye contact with each other and sharing our food and enjoying the relationship and being reminded that because we belong to God in Christ, we also belong to each other. And so we're going to start passing trays again starting today. The best thing that happened during the COVID pandemic, in my um, opinion, as far as the Lord's Supper goes, and I despise those little rip and sips, those little communion kits, but I'm telling you the best thing that happened was that all of us together in church were eating the bread at the exact same time together. And we were drinking the cup at the exact same time together, which is another way to express the unity and the community and the fellowship that we have around the table. So we don't want to lose that. We don't want to give that up. And so what we want to do is try to do both. Pass trays and eat and drink at the same time. We want to move towards our Lord's meal here at GCR in a more communal way and less individual. We want our supper time to be more participatory and more interactive. So while the trays are being passed, there's time there because it, it takes a while. I can't remember how long it takes because it's been about 20 months. So give us some grace during these first few weeks as we try to figure this out. But there is some time while the trays are being passed around for us to experience community together. And then once everybody has their bread, then we can eat it at the same time. Okay? And once everybody has their cup, then we can drink the blood of Christ at the same time. So it's going to be a little different every week. Sometimes we're going to use that tray passing time to sing a song together. Sometimes we'll use that time to greet one another. Sometimes we'll, spay, we'll pay special attention to the kids and we'll use this time as a time to teach our children about what the meal's all about. But it'll be a little different every Sunday. And again, we're going to do this for a while until, uh, until we can get this thing figured out. But we want to recover our practice of weekly communion as a meal that forms us, a meal that shapes us, a meal that changes us together more into the image of Jesus. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then I'm going to lead a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. And then the trays are going to be passed. And here's what I want you to do, what we're going to do together while the trays are being passed. You're going to be tempted to grab it just because of habit, muscle memory. You're going to be tempted to put it right in your mouth. But grab your cracker, and now's not the time to pinch off a little, you know, get it as small as you can to show how spiritual you are. Take a big chunk, okay, because it's a meal, all right? So take a, bite, uh, take a piece of cracker, hold it in your hands, and I want all of us, maybe each pew or each family, if y'all will get together while the trays are being passed, and I want you to think about the different people and the different groups of people that Jesus ate meals with. 
This was one way Jesus expressed the unity and the togetherness of the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like a big feast where all the people from all over the world are invited to eat this massive meal together as one family of God in Christ. And so I want you to think about and talk about, see if you can come up with 10 people or 10 groups of people Jesus ate with during his ministry. And then once everyone has their, their bread, then I'm going to hold up my bread and I'm going to say the body of Christ broken for you. And if you'll turn to your neighbor and say the body of Christ, and then we'll eat the bread together. And we'll do the same thing with the cup. Does that sound right? Does that sound okay? All right, I'm going to read from Galatians 3. I'm going to come down here. I don't know why I'm giving you a play-by-play, but that's, that's also kind of muscle memory for me. All right. Galatians 3, and then I'll lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. You came to this earth and you put on our flesh and you took on our sufferings and you even participated, God, in the things that we go through here on this earth and you put on our sin. You became sin for us. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks. And Lord, as we eat this meal together this morning, may we be reminded that all of us are one together in Jesus Christ. Your son Jesus expressed that. He did not, there was nobody he wouldn't eat with. And Father, we're doing that right now. In the name and in the manner of your son Jesus, we eat together. And all of God's people say, amen. with my microphone on. <laughs> one of the other things that the Lord's Supper reminds us, not only that we are one people and that there's nobody we won't eat with because of Jesus, but it also reminds us that Jesus is always working. He is always at work. Even during this meal, our Lord by His Spirit is with us, changing us, shaping us. Even as we serve each other and as we talk to one another about our Lord, do this in remembrance of me. That's not just remembering Jesus' death. That's doing what we were just doing, remembering the people he ate with and what that means for us. And so we're trying to be more active with what this meal was originally intended for. But the other thing it reminds us is that God's at work. God is at work. And so while we pass the trays this time, what I'd like for us to do, stay together in those little groups and see if you can name 10 miracles of Jesus. That's how Jesus changed lives. That's how he turned what was broken into what was always originally intended to be. So talk about those miracles. See if you can name 10 of them. And I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 3. You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in 
all. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let's pray. Father, again, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus for the blood that was shed on the cross, that great salvation work, that tremendous, unexplainable sacrifice on our behalf. Father, this blood represented by this cup cleanses us, makes us whole, forgives us, continually washes us. And Father, it makes us right with you. And it makes us right with each other. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, everybody says together, amen.